that I did not want to be an agent because I can't be nice to people all the time. (laughs) To be an agent, you have to be able to swallow your bile in a way that I can't do or that I don't want to do, I'll say that. And also you spend all your time on the phone. Welcome to Mentors on the Mic. I'm your host, Michelle Miller, a New York City native actress with credits in film, television, off-Broadway, and commercials. Every Monday, I'll bring you an incredible mentor in entertainment, focusing on how they started and how they moved up to where they are today. Thanks for listening, and let the episode begin. My guest this week is Carrie Burney. Carrie is currently the director of multi-platform and strategic research at NBC Universal Media. What does that mean? I was curious too. Carrie takes in the analytics of all NBC shows and interprets them. In her words, she makes numbers easy to understand for non-numbers people. She reports on the total audience measurement for NBC Universal. So when an episode of This Is Us comes out or Law and Order SVU, she helps produce detailed analysis over multi-platforms. Did you watch those shows live? Live plus same day? On demand on Hulu? Carrie wasn't always in research analytics. She started off as an intern for none other than our very first mentor, Stan Brooks. If you haven't listened to episode one yet, highly recommend hearing from this Emmy-winning producer and director. Carrie continued at various positions, including literary agent's assistant, production assistant, development coordinator at Scholastic, where she wrote two episodes of I Spy and worked on Clifford the Big Red Dog. Carrie then went on to Sony Pictures Television, Oxygen Media Network, and VH1 CMT. Her resume is an array of incredible places and roles in the entertainment industry. Join us on this wonderful journey in entertainment. Welcome, Carrie Burney. Hi, Carrie. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for being on this with me. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm very excited to, to talk about your wonderful, very like long career with like very different jobs. I, I felt like looking at your like LinkedIn specifically, I was just amazed at the journey you went on and to get to where you are now. That is an excellent way to put it, a journey. journey. I like that. So let's start with how did you start in this entertainment industry of ours? Sure. It starts way back when I was looking at colleges and I decided I wanted to work in journalism. So whatever school I went to had to have a journalism department. So I went to Boston and because they had a good journalism program. And then I was taking film classes. And one of my good friends, after he graduated, he was a year older than me. He moved out to LA. So March of my senior year, I went to visit him and his fiance. And he was living the LA lifestyle. He was working at Fox on a studio lot. He had a writer's group where he worked on his scripts. And he was just like living in Westwood. And it was just a lovely life. So I went home after that trip and I told my parents I was going to move to Los Angeles. And my father said, no, no, you're not. Because I grew up in New Jersey and nobody from New Jersey moved to LA. It just was rarely done from the people we knew. (laughs) Yeah. So it took some convincing, but I had three older siblings and a mom who helped me convince him because I'm the youngest and having his youngest child go across the country by herself was not really something he was fond of thinking about. 
but I already had roommates set up and I had my friend who had lived out there for a year. So I had a safety net and support system. So I, about a week after graduation, I loaded up my car, drove across country with a friend of mine from college. He was just literally along for the ride. And I got there and my roommate had already found the apartment. And then I just started literally calling everybody in the Brandeis Career Center phone book who worked in the entertainment industry. So there was a list. So I just went name by name and looking for an informational interview, not even an internship or anything or let alone a job. And I got to Stan Brooks, who was at the time head of Once Upon a Time Films. And his assistant was like, well, stand out of the country, working on a film. He doesn't really have time for informational interviews, but you want an internship. And I was like, yes. So I went in for a meeting, got the internship, worked there for the summer. Then I temped for a while doing a ton of different things. And then over Christmas that first year, Stan's company hired me to run his office while the entire office was at a retreat together. So I got to see like basically hang out in a production studio company by myself, which was awesome. Arnold Schwarzenegger was in the same building complex. So I got to see his Humvee every day. That's as close as I got to Arnold. But still, it was for a kid from New Jersey, it was very exciting. And I rode in an elevator with Shaquille O'Neal's shoe, which was also very exciting. That is very exciting. Yeah. Like you don't expect to ride in an elevator. It is not a small shoe. And I have tiny feet. So the Shaquille's assistants were laughing at me as they held his shoe up to my feet. It was not even, (laughs) I didn't even like make it past the heel with my tiny feet, but I was temping. I, I worked for a Disney's in their photo studio, working on the Disney channel. Basically I was filing photographs for Kids Incorporated and the Mickey Mouse Club. That was back when Justin Timberlake and Britney were the stars. So that was exciting. That is exciting. Um, And Ryan Gosling was there, right? Yes. Oh, I do like Ryan Gosling. So these were all internships, right? I mean, it was temping. Well, no, this was when I was temping. So temping, temping in LA is really, I don't know if they still do it, but back in the late 90s, early 2000s, you could actually temp specifically for entertainment companies. So it was great because it got me on the lot. It got me into, it it actually got me my first real job, which was at a literary agency working for agent that represented the majority TV writers. So I got to read good scripts. I got to read bad scripts. I got to see how the industry worked. I got to roll calls, which is why I learned that I never want to be an assistant again because rolling calls is awful. I got to learn where the cool places to eat were. And I just really learned how the business was. It was the first time I heard the most waspy person imaginable curse in Yiddish. Oh. It was amazing. <laughs> Do you remember um, what it was? He was just, he was like going off. Like basically, I think it was like he called someone a putz, which is like, a, as I learned from my grandma who like tried to wash my mouth out with soap, if you're going to curse at someone, schmuck is a much more polite word than putz. Right. Putz, is, putz is like a bad word where schmuck is kind of like darn it. Yeah. Um, as opposed like to the, damn the it, more tame version. Exactly. So he just like went off and was calling. I'm like, how do you like, it was just crazy. He was very old school, like agent. He came up in the, early, in the early days of the William Morris agency and like he left to start his own boutique agency, which is when I joined him. He then left, he sold his agency after I left and he became a partner at, I think, 
either Gersh or UTA, I can't remember which, but it was just a really great experience just in terms of how the industry worked. And so from there, I learned that I did not want to be an agent because I can't be nice to people all the time. (laughs) To be an agent, you have to be able to swallow your bile in a way that I can't do or that I don't want to do, I'll say that. And also you spend all your time on the phone. So then I became a PA for a very not successful Saturday night CBS television drama called Martial Law. It was the second season. It starred Sammo Hung and Arsenio Hall. And so basically my job was to let people into the office, answer calls, buy lunch, which was the most important part of my job. And then at the end of the day, I would deliver script pages around Los Angeles. So because I was living in Westport at the time, and the lot, the offices were in the Valley, I basically did a reverse commute. So my last script delivery was the Fox Studios, which was only like two miles away from my apartment. So I never had to deal with the awful Los Angeles rush hour at that job, which people told me I would hate being a PA because you're always in the car. But I made it work so that it wasn't that bad for me. After I would drop off my scripts, I would just wander around CBS Studios. I wandered around the Fox lot. I got yelled at by a Fox executive for accidentally parking in their spot. But in my defense, if you (laughs) see an empty spot at 4 p.m. on a Friday, what are the odds that somebody's going to be back? You're absolutely right. What did you do when you, did you just like walk around and just take in everything? Yes, that's exactly what I did. I would purposely try to, this was when House was still filming. So I would purposely try to walk past the House studio when Such a good they were shooting because I was trying to see if I could spot Hugh Laurie. Sense. And then there was a huge mural of basically a ton of different Westerns from like John Ford. And I would walk past that. Unfortunately, this was pre-cell phone cameras. So I didn't get any pictures of my time back then. But that's probably a good idea because who wants to get fired for taking pictures uh, when you're not allowed? <laughs> Well, so Um, so you walked around. Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do next or? I wanted to work in development. I realized I didn't have the uh, word I'm looking for. The stick to witness at the time to be a a writer, like you had to be able to spend lots of time by yourself and fail a ton of times before you succeed. And I have lots of my good friends are writers and I think they're awesome. And I still aspire to that, like even at my advanced age. But at the time, I was too immature to be a writer. But I want to be a development person. So randomly, my sister knew somebody who worked at Scholastic Media in New York City and they were looking for an assistant. So I interviewed over the phone. They hired me and they're like, can you start in a week? So I basically had a week to shut down my life in Los Angeles which I did. My lease had been up and I just didn't bother renewing. So I drove back across country. And since I was starting in a week, I took the central route across. So you're basically, most of the time you're driving through either Texas or Oklahoma, literally for a day and a half. That's all I did. And then my car broke down, which was fun. But luckily, two motorcyclists who I had befriended pointed out that my car was about to blow up. So they convinced me to pull over and I pulled into a gas station and waited for AAA. And I was a little bit scared because I was like 24 years old by myself driving across country with a car that didn't work. And luckily people in the Midwest take pity on a 24-year-old woman traveling by herself. And they were at the Jeep dealership because it was a Jeep, was able to fix my car. And I only lost about 
eight hours of my trip. So I just, instead of just driving eight hours a day, I drove 12 hours for two days wow. um, in order to make up the time. Don't tell my parents that because they would have been furious. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> I had promised them I would only drive eight hours a day so I wouldn't accidentally fall asleep, which, you know, was a fair deal to make, but I had a job to start. What did you do during those car rides? I was probably listening to either show tunes or old time radio, like Excellent. Jack Benny shows from the 1930s and 40s. I was an odd child. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but that was actually one of the really cool things about my script delivery is that one of the places I had to deliver was to CBS Productions. So I got to walk around a lot where Jack Benny did all of his best radio shows. And I'm like, this is so cool. Very few people understood how excited I was about that, but that's okay. So I drove back across country. I started at Scholastic, which was great. I work over there. Um, I had two kind of hats. I was a production assistant for when our shows were in production. And I was a development assistant when we were between production. Because it was animated. You had a long lead time. And then you send up the animators and you had nothing to do while they were animating it because that's animation. So we worked on the scripts. We worked on development. And then the animators animated it. And then we got back the rough cuts and the animatic. So we could give notes and then... They would make changes on the notes, but all of that took time. So there was a lot of downtime when we were not technically in production. And this was the um, job that included Clifford, right? Yep. This was on yes. Clifford the Big Red Dog, which was a great, great job. I, to this day, it was still one of my most favorite jobs because when Clifford ended, we didn't have a new show. We were looking at things, but we didn't really have a new show that was going to production right then. And that is a perfect opportunity to be laid off. And I really didn't want to be in New York City without a job because that is not at all fun. So I decided, okay, I looked around and tried to figure out what should we be doing that we were not doing. I kind of shared a cubicle space with our development exec who basically, his job was he read books and he pitched them for movies or shows that we could produce. And that's great for books that generally speaking, Scholastic published, but we weren't really doing anything in the comic book or graphic novel space. And this was about 2000, 2001, 2002, just when graphic novels and comic books were really beginning their resurgence. So I kind of hopped that wave just that as it was beginning. So I asked my boss if I could start reading comic books and he's like, all right, if you want to. So, and I, I was, when I was the kid, I was an Archie comic book fan, but I didn't really care about superheroes or what I really thought comic book books were all about. So I basically went into Forbidden Planet one day, which is a comic book store in New York City. Downtown, and yeah. just Yeah. And just wandered around looking at titles. I discovered there was a catalog of comic books called Previews where serious comic book readers would like place their order weeks in advance. And then they'd show up at the comic book store and their orders would be there. So what I did instead was I read through that catalog page by page, circled either people whose comics I liked or whose artwork I liked, and then I just reached out to them. So I had a kind of, I, I set up my own like contact database and I just kept bringing in properties that I pitched to my bosses. It was great. One year they sent me to San Diego Comic-Con and I got to actually meet all the people that I had been talking to over email and on the phone. And then for the people who I didn't know, I would literally walk up to them, say, hi, I'm Carrie, I'm with Scholastic. Can I talk to you? And they would just, I would walk out of their booth with like seven or eight titles because even if they were producing work 
that wasn't appropriate for Scholastic. The majority of these people were men in their 30s who all had children about three or four years old. So their work was too mature for their own kids. But the idea of creating something that that was specifically for kids, their offspring's age, just like they they loved that idea. So I so we just kind of made a connection. Unfortunately, everything I brought to Scholastic, they passed on. But I feel good that three of the properties that we passed on, Nickelodeon and Paramount, bought and produced. Did so they? I just feel Aww. like Scholastic missed the boat. Did you end but up watching those do? projects? You know what? I did not because I was afraid that they wouldn't do it as well as I would have. Yeah. And then I would have been annoyed. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. I get that. So, but I will say that one of the properties was created by Robert Kirkman, who went on to create The Walking Dead. So I feel like I was a good, uh, I was a good talent spotter. For sure. So then you took a Um, little bit of a change next, right? Because you went into sort of analyst work. Yeah. So I am at the time that I was working at Scholastic, unfortunately, my mom got sick and she passed away. And while she was kind of in the not doing well phase, I'll put it like that, I kind of had to come to a decision about what I wanted to do because Scholastic was great. But the problem with Scholastic is so great that people didn't leave. So I was still kind of at the position that I had been three years prior and I was doing cooler stuff, but it was still at the same level and there was really no movement because nobody left, which understandable because as I said, it was a great Uh, company with a very family-friendly company. So I decided that what I really wanted was a break from working because even when I was unemployed in Los Angeles, looking for work is a full-time job in and of itself. So like I never really had downtime even when I was between jobs because you're worrying, you're going to interviews, you're fixing your resume, you're networking. It's just a hassle. So I'm like, you know what I'll do? I'll go to grad school because that can't be harder than working, right? Little did I know. But Syracuse has a wonderful one-year master's program through their Newhouse School. At the time that I was looking at grad schools was the year of Janet Jackson and Nipplegate. And every article that I've read about Nipplegate had a quote from Robert, from Bob Thompson, a professor at Syracuse. And I was like, I want to be taught by that guy. Wow. And literally, that is the reason why I decided to go to Syracuse was because I wanted to take a class. Did you ever with tell the him person. that? I, I don't think so. He's not, he, we didn't have that type of relationship. Like, I think I was scared of him. Fair. Um, I did give him a book Sounds- that he had never seen before. So that made me feel special. Yeah. Nice to think that, you know, he inspired you so much to, to attend a school that he was teaching at, you know? That's- right. I mean, Syracuse was also pretty well known um, in communications and broadcast journalism and all that good stuff. But really it was because Bob Thompson went there. But Syracuse, one, they have a summer boot camp, which was a very weird time for me personally, because I went up to school the first weekend in July and my mom passed away in like July 20th or thereabouts. So I was going back and forth the first month of school to see my mom as often as I could. And then when she passed away, I took a week off of school and Syracuse was lovely. They offered to let me take the semester off. They offered to let me defer a year, but I know me. I knew that if I had taken that time, I would have just wallowed in depression because I wouldn't have had a job and 
I didn't have an apartment anymore and I just don't know what I would have done. And I just needed something to keep me busy. And grad school absolutely keeps you busy because you have no time to do anything but schoolwork. It was very weird. People were like, some of my closest friends today are from Syracuse and they're like, yeah, we didn't know your personality until second semester. You were like a ghost until then. You didn't say anything. And I found out that friends of mine were like having conversations between themselves. When should we drag Carrie out of her apartment? One of the these friends whose parents had passed away when she was a teenager was like, no, 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 let her come out of her shell at her own time. Otherwise you'll scare her. And these are all wonderful people, LA based right now, um, unfortunately. So I don't get to see them that often. But what Syracuse did have, in addition to letting me kind of refine myself and figure out what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be and actually help me find my voice, was they had three core courses that you took over summer boot camp. They had the TV history course taught by Bob Thompson. They had a production course taught by Professor Moeller. And they had a research course taught by Fiona Chu. And I loved that research course. And I was like, all right, I'm going to take the more advanced class, which was called programming, which basically you pretended you were a network programmer for a semester and you got to produce your own shows and create your own schedule. And it was just a lot of fun. But it turned out that I liked it and I was good at it, which was sort of a surprise to me because I was one of the people who at Brandeis took the math class for English majors and the science class for English majors because I I told people I don't like numbers. Numbers do not come easy to me. But what I discovered I do have is that I'm somewhat good at numbers. And what I can do, because it doesn't come easy to me, is that I'm very good at translating what numbers mean to non-numbers people. And that's all analysis is. It's taking numbers and making it easy to understand for people who don't care about numbers. And that's literally what I've been doing. So I started, this was again a situation when I was in L.A., And I interviewed for a job in New York while I was still in Los Angeles because after Syracuse, I moved back to LA just to make sure that Los Angeles was not for me. Like you don't want to live life with regrets. So I was like, maybe I didn't give LA enough of a chance. But unfortunately, three of my siblings had children the same year that I was in LA. So I felt like if I stayed in LA, I'd miss seeing them grow up because the majority of them were on the East Coast. So I moved back from Los Angeles to New York. Luckily in LA, I had gotten my first research job at Sony Pictures Television, where basically I spent most of the day photocopying and delivering delivering data packets because I was a quote unquote junior analyst, which meant that I was a paid intern. And at the time, interns didn't get to do cool stuff like we do, like, like they get to do today. This was so I interviewed with Oxygen because they were looking for somebody, and they were so kind that they let me stay out my lease in Los Angeles and had me start again like four days after I moved back to New York. I sold my car because I had bought a new car when I moved to LA the second time. I made a dozen trips to the post office to basically ship everything back because I was flying this time and I didn't want to carry anything with me. So I basically shipped everything to my brother's house in Brooklyn and then stayed with him until I could find an apartment, which took about six months, unfortunately. But luckily, my brother and his wife are lovely people and they let me stay with him rent-free, which is a very kind thing to do in New York. 
But at Oxygen, I really, it was my first, what I call real research job, because for the first time I was pulling the data myself, I was analyzing the data, and I was giving reports to the executives who were making the decisions about what shows would be picked up, what shows would be canceled, when to move shows, when to do marathons. I got to do estimates, which means you basically say what you think a show will do in the future, because most of the estimating I did was for movies. I got to estimate... um, for movie packages that they bought that wouldn't air for five years. So even if I was wrong, I wouldn't know for five years. So like, it's not like, <laughs> like there was no downside. Yeah. Um, so you just kind of made the best estimate you could based on the information you had. Exactly. And no one and was really going to contest you on it for five years. Exactly. And as it turned out, the industry absolutely um, reinvented itself in the five years between the time I had to estimate the movies and the time the movies aired to the extent that Oxygen no longer airs like shows geared towards women, which was what they were known for when I worked there. They're now a true crime network. I um, think we picked up the notebook and we had to decide what the notebook was was going to, like how many people would watch, what the ratings for the notebook would be. And like now there's no chance in the world that Oxygen would ever air the notebook. Bravo would, but Bravo the people at Bravo would have had to do a different estimate. You know estimate what's funny? That. And I don't, I think I just remembered this now. It was, it was later. So you probably weren't there, but I think I went in for an internship interview sometime in college. So maybe right around the same time. I mean, you were in oxygen, you were in oxygen until 2008. Um, yeah. And I'm pretty sure it was after that, that I interviewed for them, but I interviewed for their, like their programming Oh, do you know who you met with? I'm going to look it up and send it to you. I'm sure I have an email in my my Gmail or something, but, or Brandeis email or something. I can look that up as well. But I I remember like, I remember specifically was programming and I don't know, remember why, but I had the contact information for Bravo programming and oxygen programming. And I went in for an interview with oxygen and I thought their space was incredible. Were they still at Chelsea market? Yeah. Yeah. It was just a really beautiful, like awesome space. It was a, a sort of feminine touch to it. Uh, I, I think. That and I just remember, and the people were really nice and I didn't really know what I was going in for. I didn't know what came with programming. I hadn't prepared for it well enough. I ended up getting oh. an internship at the Emmy Awards. So it was fine. But nice. Yeah. But I didn't know. I wish I knew more about programming and analysis at the time because it really did. I bet I know who you interviewed with. I, yeah. I'm going to look it up and send it to you as soon as this is done because that's, that's so exciting. amazing. But it was a great interview and they're really nice about it. Yeah. Um, they're they're great, great people. It, it's now turned over completely. Like nobody I know from my time there is still there. I think the last person I knew left a couple of years ago. Every so often we have reunions because Oxygen is one of the last of the independent cable networks to be bought out by a large corporation. So when I started in 2006 or seven, they were just beginning to clean up their reputation in order to sell to NBC Universal. Because before I got there, they they would have these like randomly, the head of the network would be like, okay, clear the, I forgot what they called the big space in the middle, but clear that area. We're going to bring out the keg. So they would bring out kegs 
bottles of wine and a popcorn wow. machine, and they would just randomly have drinks in the middle of the afternoon. Not sure how that worked with the research people because a big part of the research job would have happened at four o'clock. So I'm assuming they couldn't imbibe too much. Mm. But yeah. So, but so, you so started oxygen, doing, yeah, you started doing more analysis for oxygen. And then what was your favorite thing that you, you did there? Like, what was a great project that you had to analyze or had to, that you were a part I of? I really liked doing the estimates. So we yeah. had to, at the time when Glee first broke, about a year in before it kind of had that huge spike and then the quick drop off off the cliff when it kind of jumped a shark, they came out with the Glee Project that I loved the Glee Project. And so I had to estimate the Glee Project. And because I worked on that, I got to go to the Glee concert as part of the the executives. So we got to, we went, we were in the green room and we all got Glee jackets or sweatshirts. I think they were like a fleece Glee thing. We got like the skiff packet. And it was the coolest thing. I felt like, man, this is what it is to be an executive in Hollywood. Because I wasn't used to swag or seeing celebrities or anything like that. And I was hanging out with like SVPs and EVPs. And I think I was a senior analyst at the time. So these people were like four and five levels above me. So I was scared to talk to any of them except the head of scheduling because he was a genuinely nice guy who like I worked with closely in my job as a research analyst because he was my one of my main clients. So I basically spoke to him every day. If you need to talk to programming and you were in research, you basically walk the next aisle over and you were at his office. Unlike today, if you're in research and you want to talk to programming, you're calling Los Angeles or you're uh, Zooming or Teams calling with LA. Like it's right. not as simple as like sitting down in their office and having yeah. a bottle of water. And did you feel like there was a very sort of linear path for this in terms, not like the whole, not like everything you've talked about, but specifically for analysis? Like, you know, there's yeah, research so analysis, junior. Research right? has a much or more the- linear stepping stone up up the levels than I'd say on the creative side, because just because I, I feel that creatives, it's a lot more on networking. I mean, you have to be very good at what you do. And you have to be, but you have to be personable and you have to be good in a room or you have to be very good at glad handing, which I'm not the best at. And you have to be personable in research as well. But I feel like because we're like numbers people, that there's a little bit of a, they give you a little bit of leeway for eccentricities, but there's still like levels. So you start with an, you're an analyst, you're, then you're a senior analyst, then you're a manager, then you're either a senior manager or a director. And then you're a senior director or a VP, and then you're a SVP, EVP, and I think you're either president or you die after that. <laughs> you just retire, you're done. Yeah, that's a much nicer way of saying it. So that's what I did at Oxygen. I was an analyst and a senior analyst and a manager. Then I jumped to VH1 because when NBCU bought Oxygen, we had to interview for our jobs because when you're bought by a large corporation, there's a lot of duplication of labor that they don't want to pay for. So we had to prove our worth basically. And luckily research, we only lost a coordinator position who is doing quite well now at like Google or Facebook, I think. But she was the only person we lost from our department, but overall about 40% of the oxygen workforce was let go. And interviewing for a job that you've done for two and a half years is really depressing because there's a lot of pressure and it's like, 
That makes a lot of sense. Like I'm really doing the best I can. And now you're making me prove my worth to somebody I haven't met before. And that's just, I don't know, but I must've done a fine job because I kept my job. But then two years later, NBCU was in the process of being bought by Comcast. And I knew that I'd have to probably interview for my own job again. And there's a lot of legal stuff that happens and data that has to be saved. And lawyers may have to talk to you because especially when NBCU was being bought by Comcast, you're now dealing with a studio and a network and a distribution method. So there are a lot of legalese that happens between Comcast, the cable distributor, and NBC Universal, the studio slash consortium of cable networks. Because if you think about it, they, Comcast absolutely could have had, had an unfair advantage by saying, okay, all of NBCU's networks were only going to be allowed to air on Comcast over Comcast Wire. So Time Warner, Dish, DirecTV, you're out of luck. Your clients will never see Oxygen or Bravo or USA. That's not right. And actually, it's illegal. Mm. Oh, there you go. Good to know. There was a period of time, I think it was five years, where there was a wall that could not be breached between Comcast and parts of NBC Universal. Over the past couple of years, it absolutely has lessened. Like now that Comcast is not going to take unfair advantage of their capacity of distribution method. But I didn't really want to have to deal with that because I knew it would be a big deal. And I kind of wanted to work someplace that was not NBC Universal just to see how different companies handle yeah, research. Handle, yeah, handle research. That makes a lot of sense. So I... You know yeah. what I've always had a question about, and you're like the perfect person to yeah. ask about this. So in terms of d- the data analysis of you know measuring a total audience type of thing, but like, let's say there's a show that I'm on as an actor. There's a show and it's airing on NBC. And then afterwards it airs. How do you estimate how many people viewed that, let alone if they watched on demand or if they recorded it and watched it two days later or if they Excellent then watched question. it online? Because that is literally what I did at NBC. So briefly talk about VH1, which is, so I was a manager at Oxygen in the programming research department. So I, that meant that I looked at our actual programs and told our scheduling group what I thought they would do. And I helped them create the best schedule for the most amount of viewers, like which shows worked Mm. well together, which shows didn't work well together. When should you repeat a show? When should you premiere a show? What movies should you air after a depressing show? That type Mm. of stuff. Oh, and And this also affects advertisers, right? Like for commercials, they need to know what kind of eyes and what the demographic of the people watching is. That makes sense. So there is an advertising research group which only deals with advertisers and they deal with slightly different metrics, but we all work hand in hand because we're all staring at the same base numbers. So at VH1, I did basically the same thing just for different networks. I worked for VH1, CMT, and Logo. And that was fun because the people at Viacom are fantastic. I met awesome people, really smart people that in some ways they were very similar to Oxygen. In other ways, they were very different. Oxygen seemed to be less Excel heavy and more kind of PowerPoint and Dex. And Mm -hmm. Viacom seemed to be more about the numbers themselves in Excel. But I was doing the same thing that I had been doing for the past four years. And then NBC came calling and say, and reached out to me. Actually, the person who had interviewed me for my job at Oxygen when we were being bought by NBC Universal reached out to me when I was at 
Viacom to see if I would be interested in a position at NBC. Mm. And I had always wanted to work for a broadcast network. To work at 30 Rock would have been a dream come true for me. So I jumped at the chance to interview. The job they first called me in for wasn't quite right for me because it would have been another parallel move. But then they called back three days later and said, we realized that the job that you interviewed for was not really what you're looking for right now. But would you be interested in this other position, a more landscape position, where I don't just look at how shows do on television, but how shows do on all platforms. So I'm like, yes, that is exactly what I'd want to do because I'm fascinated by the TV industry and just how it works and how it changes. Then like I'm a fan of old time radio and just the linear road from radio and vaudeville to TV and where we are today is just insane. Like people... 30 years ago, could never have imagined where we are today. Of course. So what I do and what I did was I look at how people watch TV. So if they're watching Law & Order SVU on, what is it now? Thursday nights at 10 o'clock at midnight or thereabouts. So if you watch it at 10 o'clock, you're watching it live. If you watch it at 10.05, you're watching it live plus same day because you're no longer watching it completely live. You've now moved into time shifted. Mm -hmm. So that's measured slightly differently. And then at about 3 a.m. the next morning, because we need to have, Los Angeles has to have a chance to watch it and Hawaii has to have the chance to watch. We'll put it up on various alternate platforms. So set-top box VOD, Hulu, NBC.com, Xfinity will air it on their TVE networks. And then you're right, we have to be able to count all those people. So right now, there's no one way to count all platforms. So each network really does it themselves because we all have our own proprietary data that says, okay, we know that this has this many streams on Hulu, this many streams on NBC.com, this many streams that came from the YouTube TV DVR, this many streams that came from Xfinity TV everywhere. And however many ways you could watch TV, now we bring it into a centralized database system. But when I first started, I was doing it manually, which I would never want anyone to do because it was just insanity. You'd have yeah. to manually create ratings yeah, based on a lot. Especially data. now with so many ways and outlets to watch yeah. something. Be Luckily, awesome. before the centralization, I really I really only had to care about linear set top box VOD, Hulu and NBC.com. I wasn't things like YouTube TV and Xfinity Good. TV even, yeah. didn't too exist. Many, too many options now. Yeah. But so that's what we do. So the, the industry as a whole is still working on coming up with like a Nielsen version of total television. Like Nielsen is the go-to people for linear TV. They're working on it. And that's all I'll say about yeah. that. So when a network comes out with ratings, right? Or estimated mm-hmm. ratings. And they'll say the premiere episode of this show got this many viewers. Mm-hmm. Is that a is that proprietary for that network? Is it something else? Um, established. It depends. So if I so if you if you so I know a lot of networks they make their press releases available online. Like you could go to abc.com's website, and if you look around enough, you'll see all of the press releases that they send out. And in those press releases, they'll say that like. Grey's Anatomy did a 2.5 live plus same day. Expectation are that it will grow another 1.5 ratings points after seven days and another 0.5 ratings points when all digital viewing is added in. So 
That's what they say. I, as an employee at NBC, can't verify that their data is accurate. Mm. But I can say the same thing about This Is Us. And they can't verify that my data right. is accurate. So right. we could say that for press, but you can't, you can't sell against that. Because if you can't prove your numbers, and again, it's proprietary, what advertising agency is going to put money against it if we can't prove that This Is Us is the number one show, drama? Right. So Nielsen is working on it. I'll, I'll, do you think I'll that the industry, that. and you don't have to answer this, but do you think the industry would benefit from having a uniform standard? of? Yes. Yeah. It would make everybody's job so much easier. It would make the advertisers easier. Advertising uh, industry's job easier. Our um, residuals easier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm sure that actors and writers and producers are kind of getting the shaft because... I don't believe in the... Con- I mean, maybe now in the contracts, it's saying it'll give a total number. What the viewing no is, idea. I know that some contracts have like, if you break a five rating, you get an X percent bonus. But it's kind of like the movie industry where you get a gross ratings point or net ratings points. Like one gets you money and one do- one gets you money after five years and one never gets you money because movie industry folks can cook the book so that they never reach that pinnacle because of the way the paperwork works. Not saying right. that anybody does that on purpose, but I just know, know it's happened. I think Tom Hanks has an anecdote about that. So, you know, I have to end this soon, unfortunately, because this has been so interesting. But I do want to ask, like, what is next for you? Or do you know? Like, I mean, if there's something, you know, w- w- would there be a next sort of in this linear path I mean, because right now you're you're a director, right? So that's mm-hmm. you know, director of strategic research. So yep. is there a next? What would that be? If I continue on the line, I hope yeah. that at some point I'm either a senior director or a VP. I hope it's at NBC Universal because they're awesome people and I like working there. And yeah. as I've learned, health insurance is really important. Yeah. yeah. And I like having health insurance. Yes. We'll see. I mean, we don't know. Who knows what the industry will be in five years? It's entirely possible that in five years, TV won't exist as we know it. There could be a new Netflix that a new like killer app like Netflix was that completely changes the future of TV. Television usage, the way it has been measured, has drops about like 7% year over year. And it's been dropping like that for the past seven years. So... At some point, like, yeah. is there a ground floor or is there a basement? Are we going to give up leveled. the idea of linear altogether yeah. and will everything just move on demand, mm. which is where we're much closer to being these days. If you think about your YouTube TVs and your Hulu lives and Peacock's coming out, uh, NBC Universal's coming out with Peacock and yeah, I've Time heard Warner just came out with HBO Max and Sony has a thing coming out. On the other hand, how much money are consumers willing to pay to have a dozen different platforms that all do what cable used to do. At some point, are we all now paying more for our television than we did with cable? And is build your own bundle too expensive? And who knows what's, uh, what's next about what's that? Next you should talk to the industry. Okay. And so lastly, Really, really lastly, how can people find you? You can find me on LinkedIn. I also yeah. have Instagram. I have a personal one at K-L-Bernie, K-L-B-E-R-N-E-Y. I also have one for my photography. That's New Yorker in New York. You can also put it in the show notes. 
so yes, I can like, please, yeah. yeah, that'll be easy. Look on the I'll show be, notes. Yes. And, and then you'll just be able place. to like copy and paste. It'll be easy. Yes. New York or New York. Find it. Yes. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for this. This has been so interesting. This was a lot less oh. scary than I thought it oh, would be. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah. It's just a thank conversation. You. And I just, you know, I personally am really interested in all that you do. And so this personally was very interesting, but I do think that this is something especially because we don't, you know, I feel like we're not taught all the different roles in the industry. You know, I you just 100% one or two. agree. You know, it's yeah. just like you see director, producer, you see actor, you see, you know, the things that are visual that are in front of you. Yeah. You don't see what else goes on and, and what other paths there are. So I, I just really love the idea agree. of you just like this, obviously, like we said, it's your personal journey. You know, you don't have to have anyone, you know, completely emulate it, but at least they'll have an idea of this type of path. And I love talking about myself. So if anybody wants to reach out, please do. I give better advice than I take. So I have that going for me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we appreciate it. We really do. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. This was really a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Gary. Last week, I read a review on Apple Podcasts Aloud um, at the end of the episode. And I really, really just am so grateful for everyone who's been writing these reviews, for sharing them, for the messages you've written me, either on Instagram or if you know me personally. It's just been really, really rewarding. I put a lot of effort into this podcast. I read books. I spoke to people. I joined communities. I took courses and did multiple launch you know, plans and stuff. So... It's just been really, really nice to hear how all of you guys appreciate and and enjoy it. So this review is by Vince W. Matthews. Love hearing the journey and transition. Those who are great, you'll often find, have a coach or a mentor, which shows you how great they are. Here, Michelle brings us behind the curtain of Hollywood as she dives the conversation with some of the industry greats. I love hearing the journey and transition from back then to now. Thank you, Vince. And... Please, if you haven't written a review yet, please go to Apple Podcasts and review. If you're having any issues, please feel free to write to me on my Instagram at mentors on the mic or at Michelle Simone Miller. I'm happy to walk you through it. It's it's just really good for the algorithm. It makes me feel really good, and I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to Mentors on the Mic. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend you know would love it. Let me know what you learned or what stayed with you on our Instagram at mentors on the mic. I will be sharing even more information about our mentors. These are crazy times. And now more than ever, it's so important to connect. Talk to someone about what you learned today who would really appreciate it and send them the episode. Also, if you love the show, please go ahead and leave us a rating on iTunes. I'm choosing a review to read on our next episode. It really makes a huge difference in growing this. Thanks.